Hello and welcome to an extra Jaffa Cakes for Proust in this month of March 2016. Till, what are we doing? What's going on? Well, we did our regular first Friday of the month show. We added a Jaffa Cake jukebox next week, Monday the 28th. Not on the Friday, but Monday the 28th, there will be the first of the six sitcom club specials for this year. So it's like, well, let's just fill that third week in March. Seems a shame to leave a gap. Today we're looking at one of our nice little long-form topics where we can really get our teeth into it because there's lots and lots and lots to analyse. And we're looking at the development of breakfast television in the UK, which obviously hasn't been around in the UK as long as it has in the US, for example. And it's only been around for, what, 33 years now? It's not really all that long in television terms. And it's something that's quite established now. I mean, in a future podcast, perhaps we'll look at, say, overnight broadcasting, which seems to have peaked already and now seems pretty much dormant, whereas breakfast television was slow to find its feet, but it's now an established part of the daily schedules. Now, where do you want to start with this? Do you want to start where most of the documentaries start, most of the talking heads start, or do you want to start where it really starts? No, I want to start where it really starts, because Talking Heads documentaries are all very well, but of course they have time constraints, don't they? And no, we were going to do it properly. We're going to get in when the action begins. Okay, so first of all, breakfast television in the UK by 1977. There's been plenty of examples of there being broadcasting early in the morning when an occasion warrants it. So you've had things like, for example, general elections, American elections, the Apollo missions, Raw weddings, so on and so on. But 1977 is the first occasion in which we have breakfast television for its own sake. This came in the form of a nine-week experiment on commercial TV from Yorkshire and Tyne Tees. This was initially an hour and a half and then reduced to an hour. It was a block of programming. Only 15 minutes of it was actually material specifically made for that slot and the rest of it was made up of cartoons and American soap opera. But in the Yorkshire area, you had a 15-minute edition of the calendar news program and an equivalent program for Tiny's viewers in the northeast of England. And we had a little chance to watch the first edition of Good Morning Calendar, didn't we? We did. Well, it's on YouTube. It's not like we had to do any extra special top-secret research. It's possibly the reason that Good Morning Calendar is mentioned more often than Good Morning North. There are enough sources that say that it was Tinties in Yorkshire, but sometimes there are quite a few that just seem to go, oh, and there was breakfast television tested in Yorkshire. What's interesting is they have already got the colours of breakfast television on there. It's yellow, orange and red. But beyond that, it's really just a news bulletin in a fairly cramped-looking studio. We can only speak for Good Morning Calendar, but I can't imagine Good Morning North departed that much from the formula. Odd little jingles. Traffic news is introduced with something that seems to go <laughs> nuts, and Bob Warman occasionally making rather forced gags. He's by himself. You know what he needed? A co-presenter. It's almost like you're the co-presenter, <laughs> you watching at home. He's tossing you these jokes, but of course he can't hear your reaction. And a vox pop about love. That already seems to be Scott Elite Market with a 16mm camera and bring back something. That being said, I could cope with that in the morning. He's just reading out the headlines and doing a little bit of a frothy feature as the thing winds down. So it's clearly embryonic 
It advertises itself as embryonic. We're only going to go for 15 minutes with one person. But I think you can see the beginnings of what is really the only formula that has ever worked on British breakfast television, which is somebody being quite relaxed and jokey in a colourful studio. And as we'll discover, there's a lot of different formulas that have been attempted over the years. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that BBC Breakfast today is not really all that different to Good Morning Calendar. It's got more people involved in it, and it's got a nice, wide, expansive set and so on. But fundamentally, it's still presenters, newsreaders, giving you the news and light features. But there's many twists and turns along the way. And after that experiment... Do we know why the idea wasn't continued? Was it really done for the benefit of the IBA? As far as I understand it, it was simply an experiment to judge whether there was public interest in it. And having completed that experiment, it was then seen at that time as something that the IBA would advertise in due course. So there was talk about some of the companies, perhaps. Thames, for example, floated the idea publicly about perhaps running some of their own programmes in the mornings. But eventually the IBA decided that this would be a time slot that they would advertise as part of the new franchise round beginning in 1982. So the franchises were advertised in 1980 along with basically everything else. So you had all of the ITV regions and so on and you had the start day set up for Channel 4. And when they made their announcement at the end of December, the outcome was a little bit of a surprise to some people. A lot of the newspaper articles at that time had focused on ITN having submitted a bid to hold that franchise and some of the media analysts and so on had pretty much expected that ITN with its track record in provision of news for ITV that they were the odds on favourite. And there were certain other groups that had applications in for example, there was one in which Jonathan Dimbleby was involved. But in the end, it was TVAM. And this was headed by Peter Jay, who at that time had completed his turn as British ambassador to Washington. And they had put together this star-studded lineup, this gang of six, as it initially was. And they'd managed to keep this remarkably secret. They had their star presenters, some of which were approached from the BBC. And the biggest name probably was David Frost. And of course he was involved in the company as well. You had Anna Ford, who was actually working on News at 10 at the time, so made her rather unpopular with ITN, given that they had put in their own bit as well. Angela Rippon and Esther Ranson, both on the BBC at that time. Robert Key and Michael Parkinson. Now, Esther Ranson eventually stayed with the BBC. Uh, she had another child and she decided that she didn't want the early morning, so she stayed at the BBC and continued with that's life. But otherwise, the Gang of Five went on to host TVM. But before we get there, there's quite a few twists and turns before we actually get to the point where TVM launches. For example, officially the reason that this was done was that it was the 50th anniversary of BBC Scotland broadcasting from the Edinburgh studios. So in December of 1980, they broadcast for a week what was called Radiovision. And it only went out on BBC Scotland, and it was a simulcast of Good Morning Scotland on Radio Scotland. And it was simply that. It was cameras in the radio studio. I can't help but think that the timing of that, early December, with the commercial awards being announced at the end of that month, there was a slight bit of mischief-making there. 
The BBC had previously said in response actually to the 1977 experiment from the IBA, the BBC had said that breakfast television was not really a priority for them. But with the IBA then saying in 1980, OK, we're going to advertise for license for this and we want a full programme going out, BBC changed its tune and thought, well, OK, we can't actually cede this to commercial television entirely. So there were discussions around about the possibility of doing radio vision. And the first report of this actually came out just two days after the IBA announced that TVM would be the ITV breakfast provider of choice. Uh, so, yeah, the, the idea that this happened at the beginning of 1980, ostensibly for an anniversary, it seems a little bit too convenient. And it seems to have been well received. There were viewing figures of around about 200,000 for the show, which in Scotland only is, is pretty good for you know, a time slot where they previously been... Sorry, what was that number? 200,000, I think, was the average viewing figure for Radio Vision. I'm going to ask you to remember that number for later on. Yeah, bear in mind, that's 200,000 for the whole of Scotland, not for the whole of the UK. Yeah, so, like I said, within a couple of days, we've got this announcement, BBC is going to start breakfast television, and they're going to do it before TVM gets on the air. And initially, it's going to be this kind of Radio Vision approach, which will be relatively low cost and so on. However... TVM are told by the IBA that they cannot go on the air until May 1983. And eventually, after Peter J lobbies IBA for some time, eventually that's moved to February 83. But they weren't allowed to go on air when they wanted to, which was 1982. They wanted to go on air as early as possible in 1982, pretty much alongside the new ITV franchise holders. But the IBA wanted to keep the path clear for Channel 4, launching in November 82, let them get started, let them find their advertisers and so on, and then TVM could start a few months later. So BBC had their own twists and turns. They had to negotiate with the unions and so on, and eventually they announced January 83 as their starting point, and there we have it. So in the immortal words of Frank Boff, Britain's first ever regular early morning television programme began. The thing so far, Radio Vision, it's the morning radio news program, ITN being expected to get it. Thames' initial overtures in 1979 had Jonathan Dimbleby at the heart of it. The expectation is there. Breakfast television will be news. It will be news analysis, maybe, as well as news headlines. Breakfast television is going to be all about that day's news agenda. You've mentioned Peter J. A name worth bringing into this is John Burt because of his background at Weekend World, working with Peter J, And they had this bee in their bonnet about the bias against understanding. And what is the cure for a bias against understanding? The cure is a mission to explain. <laughs> so yes, in the shadow of all this, the expectation is early morning television is going to be news-based. And we've all seen the documentaries. We all know what the big shock was when BBC Breakfast Time started. And it's Frank Boff in a sweater. Just a moment's inspiration came during rehearsals, apparently. And something Michael Parkinson later went on to criticise, that Frank Boff was not dressing properly for the viewers. And TVAM, having pushed that they had to do it early, we've got to get in there, we've got to be hot on the heels, didn't have enough time to react. It was a mistake, wasn't it? They should have gone on in May. Yes, they probably should have done. Because... It's one thing to have the BBC breathing down your neck and having months and months of breakfast television. 
but it actually gives some time for the bloom to go off the rose. Let them watch for six months. And now the novelty's worn off. The novelty would be with the new company. After six months of nothing but BBC to watch in a morning. I think it was panic. I don't think it was strategy. I think it was panic. Well, it's the first of many woes for TVM. I mean, like you say, BBC's turned up with this very relaxed, cosy, early morning programme. Based more on Nationwide, the news night. Exactly, yes, exactly. And I suspect that some people were thinking, okay, they're going to take the Today programme off the radio. Even then, the Today programme on Radio 4 at that time was slightly less formal than it is now. By 1983, it was evolving into the show that it is now, but it still had sort of light-hearted items and what have you. It wasn't the sort of hard news agenda that it's gotten and had for the past sort of 20 years or so. The BBC really scored a, a blinder because they not only managed to outwit TVM, but also they, they gave BBC TV and radio viewers and listeners a choice. And you actually had something different, you had something new. Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, they're all doing their own kind of breakfast show. Radio 4 is a place to go for the serious news. And there's this nice new alternative on the television. A couple of things to note about TVM before they even got on the air. This is an area which tends to get overlooked. TVM had been negotiating with ITN in 1981 with a view to ITN providing the news service for TVM. And there's a very nice little piece here by Elkin Allen in The Times in August 1981 where it reveals what the dispute was between the two parties and why ITN ultimately never ended up providing regular news for TVM. They did occasionally work together on election specials. But Peter Jay had this, as you said, he's got this idea about this mission to explain he wants to furler his agenda of hard news being conveyed in a sort of populist manner. And he had a problem with the idea that they would hand over a big chunk of their program to ITN to carry the news, and then they've got to then effectively (laughs) sort of react to that. You're right. No, you see, he realised the truth. All the young dudes carry the news. (laughs) So Jay is quoted as saying, we won't even take 90 seconds from ITN. It would be ridiculous to have Anna Ford and Robert Key sitting there ready to anchor the morning show and having to go somewhere else for someone else to read the headlines. The viewers would think it was Barmy and I would think it was Barmy. And he had this problem with the fact that ITN would effectively be setting the news agenda for the program for then the presenters to then react to. But ITN's response was quite something and it suggests that perhaps TVM's mission to explain. I know that people make a mockery of it these days, but this suggests that perhaps there is something more serious at play here. David Nicholas, ITN, was then quoted in response, We are a television newspaper, not a news agency. If TVM wants to comment on the news, they are not going to mix up our reports with their interpretations. We frequently have people in dangerous spots and we are not going to put them in greater danger by allowing their words to be used in a context we don't control. We have an identity and we intend to keep that identity. Now, that's an area that doesn't tend to get a lot of focus 
ultimately TVM go alone. They have their own news provision. And within a short space of time, of course, with their cutbacks, the news is down to the bare bones. And this will cause them problems later on. But it is interesting to actually hear an alternative point of view from somebody not just saying, oh, we think the mission to explain is somewhat patronising and it's perhaps going back to the LWT68 lofty view of, oh, we can do commercial television better and so on. There's somebody actually saying there's a really good reason why this is actually a really bad idea. Oh, ah, something I have in my notes. Because, yes, we talked a few months ago about London Weekend Television starting out with high ideals. It had paid off once before. 1955. Independent television starts and associated rediffusion are more BBC than thou. They are formal, they are stiff, heraldic, that frightening, frightening coat of arms clock they have. And while at first ITV loses money, I think that air of respectability helped ITV survive. We're talking at the time this is happening. So 1983, 1955 is only 28 years previously. People would remember that. There was a time when taking the high ground paid off and could be argued that the entire network survived because of it. It cut off one route of criticism, which was that it was going to be trashy. And this was a thing that had dogged the very idea of breakfast television. It was not entirely respectable. Even when you look at those early viewing figures that they're haggling over, when the BBC pull ahead and TVM fall behind... There are definitely people, BBC's massive hit audience was 1.8 million. There are people who just choose not to turn on the television in the morning. Just doesn't happen. But part of that is there are people who choose not to turn on TVAM. When TVAM finally starts to pull ahead, they seem to be gaining viewers from non-TV sources as much as they're gaining viewers from the BBC. Of course, TVM has another problem before it ever gets on the air, and this one was rather more serious in terms of the bottom line, because at this time you've got Channel 4 beginning, which has got an interesting arrangement with ITV as far as its finances are concerned. But TVM is an old-school ITV franchise. It has advert breaks, it sells advertising time, it makes its money from adverts. So it's first of all, it's going to have eyeballs watching it, and then they can have their lovely license to print money, as somebody around these parts once suggested. But like we said about London Weekend, oh, it was highbrow, they were arrogant. Yeah, but they also had a strike one week into their life, and that seems to almost get brushed over which means they're then trying to make up for revenue lost, not because of the tone of their output, but because of technical things happening at the side. Industrial action. But this particular dispute began even before TVM had started. Basically, the Institute of Practitioners and Advertising began negotiations with equity in early 1982 to agree the fees that actors would receive for appearing in adverts on Channel 4 and TVM. And the IPA basically said to Equity, obviously you're not going to expect the full ITV rate because there's going to be a lot less people watching Channel 4 and TVM. So they put together a proposal which, if the viewing figures for Channel 4 and TVM had been very, very good, would have meant that actors were making somewhere in the region of about 25% of the residuals that they got for an advert on ITV. 
Equity at the time, I think, headed by CJ, John Barron. They wanted something closer to 75%. And eventually, Equity instructed its members not to appear in adverts for Channel 4. This then led to a situation where TVM said in... 1983, we are losing somewhere in the region of about half a million pounds a month because we can't carry normal adverts. Everybody's seen that clip, of course, of the first ad break on TVM. And here comes Ian Melrose. Hello, I'm Mr. Sausages. He's not an equity member, so therefore he can appear on the adverts. And you've got a little selection of ads with, say, non-union members providing voiceover. Barbara Woodhouse did some adverts. Along with Channel 4, TVM was being starved of revenue, but of course Channel 4 had its bailout because Channel 4 was being bailed out by the ITV companies. ITV companies, in turn, were hit financially by this dispute. But for TVM, it was just sucking the life out of them. Knives out for the content, then. We watched the first day of TVAM. Yes, indeed. Surprisingly, that's all available on YouTube. The whole ruddy thing. Daybreak immediately hits you with the colour grey. You have the TVM ident, which is rather nice, and it's only now I'd realised that's actually the ident for the company. I was never entirely clear as a child about TVAM and Good Morning Britain and all and After Nine what they all really meant. I wasn't actually all that interested in franchises as a child. I know that's a shock. But this Daybreak hits you with grey. The CGI involved, but mainly there's a lot of grey. Another thing that jumps out at me, just to give you an idea of the tone, Robert Key, he's talking to Nick Owen, and he's talking about the difference in crowds you get between rugby and football. Soccer. But he doesn't say soccer or football. He says association football. (laughs) A lot of the media columns right now are talking about Tom Bradby on News at 10 and how he is introducing this more conversational style to presenting the news to make it distinct from BBC. So where Hugh Edwards has given you the headlines in the traditional manner, Tom Bradby is throwing in these little bits and pieces to sort of paint the picture a bit more and what have you and make it a bit more relaxed. And of course, this isn't anything new because this is Robert Key. This is Robert Key's style. Robert Key's whole delivery is... Well, there's... um Yes. Now, what time is it? 6.15. I see. Okay. Well, here's the top story. And yes, I see. Right. Okay, that's happening. And well, we'll be having the farming news in a minute. Uh, but first of all, and it's, it's all like that, isn't it? It's not snappy and sharp and what have you. And, and, and actually, I think it's quite nice. It's quite a nice change, especially at that time in the morning. It's nice that you don't have somebody shouting headlines at you. We should have watched that whole three hours of TVM at 6am. That's where we went wrong. No! There's research and then there's just masochism. Okay, how did you find TVM in comparison with Breakfast Time? It does seem more self-conscious, doesn't it? That's the thing. I have seen people criticise the lack of chemistry between David Frost and Anna Ford. But to me, it doesn't strike me as a lack of chemistry. Maybe if I'd watched weeks and weeks on end, it would have become clear. It just strikes me as nervousness. It's a lack of chemistry. It's not negative chemistry. It's not one of those situations where you can tell that two co-presenters loathe each other. It's not tension, but there is that slight element of, right, have you finished talking? Shall I talk now? Or David Frost making one of his pre-prepared quips and not getting much reaction from Anna. I mean, he never worked with you, and then you really know what it's like to be out in the cold. (laughs) 
I do like how the ad breaks crash in and out. Like, that's enough of that. <laughs> Impression something. <laughs> in the galleries. This is boring. Let's have an ad break. Click. Frequently, it's halfway through a sentence that the ad break kicks in. That's another thing. Lack of technical expertise. Michael Parkinson had walked out during one of the dry runs. Lots and lots of money had been spent on these new studios. And apparently it was all class. So everybody could see everybody else. So everybody felt paranoid and naked working in a greenhouse. A huge amount of money had been spent, I think, on a flat. There was somewhere for people to stay if they absolutely had to. Money's being spent where it shouldn't. And also, you don't need a famous five. There seems to be money being spent in the wrong place. They don't need egg cups on the top of the building, do they? <laughs> don't forget the barge. Don't oh, forget yes, the yes, barge. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Greg Dyke famously was going to uh, scarper with it if it, if it comes to it. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities here with BSB, funnily enough. You've got people with, again, you know, comparison with LWT68, because it's something that seems to repeat itself about every 10 years or so. You've got people with high-minded ideals about what commercial television should be doing and also spending large amounts of money on details that really don't matter and then having the backside kicked by an opposition which is being careful with its money and can't throw it about the place and just has to concentrate on the finished product that it's putting out. That's one thing we didn't mention. Breakfast time is in Lime Grove. Again, the heart of the news operation. I was going to say not the most inspiring of locations. It's not so much that, but it's an old-fashioned location. It's coming from a little rabbit warren of houses and old film studios. It's pre-television centre BBC. So it's another contrast with egg cups and glass and a barge, a little somewhere to stay for people who are sufficiently important enough in the eyes of TVIM. I mean, this might be something where it's perhaps more important in different countries and different cultures, whatever it may be, but certainly in the UK... I don't think that expensive studios uh, and what have you, I don't really think that impresses audiences. And it's quite often something that you often hear television companies and their spokespeople talk about things like the studios when they don't really have a lot to talk about in terms of their actual content. So, yeah, I think that the viewing public, I don't really think that they could care less where Breakfast Time was coming from. I don't think they would have cared if it was coming from Orkney. Because... At the end of the day, they're still indoors. Four walls and a ceiling. There's no windows on the outside of the wall. So what does it matter where it comes from? Now, obviously, it does matter in terms of logistics and so on. But it doesn't matter quite as much as perhaps TVM thought it mattered. Or, for that matter, BSB, later on down the line, thought that it mattered. Or ITV Digital thought that it mattered and so on and so on. You know, what matters is the finished product. In terms of eyeballs... Here's quite a staggering statistic. The week of February the 21st through to the 25th, there were occasions when TVM officially had no viewers. <laughs> now, we know that not they didn't really have no viewers. I mean, at least there's somebody sat in the gallery watching the output. But there's a nice wee breakdown here of the viewing figures for that week. When BBC One comes on the air at half past six, it starts off, Quite slowly as well, 180,000 viewers, and that creeps up to 300,000, and then half a million, and 800,000, and eventually starts hitting the millions, and 1.4, 1.6, it peaks around about quarter past eight or so. But TVM is constantly 
hovering the highest it ever gets is 320,000 right at the end of the show after 9 o'clock. For the majority of the time, it's hovering around about the 200,000 mark or thereabouts. But there are periods, particularly very early in the morning before half past six, when daybreak is on, when the viewing figures have dropped below 100,000 and it's so low that it can't actually be picked up by BRB. That's quite something. I'd quite like to be an exclusive little club watching a show. I mean, the thing is, nowadays it's easy to do that because if you just pick up the Sky Remote Control, you can always find some channel around about the 700s or something that you know that probably about a dozen people are watching. But back then, 1983, you've only got four options on the TV then, and only two of them, I think, are shown in any programs, and you could be in that exclusive little club. Do you know what really annoyed me most about that first day? What's that? The world of Melanie Parker. (gasps) Because that comes across as being made by somebody who thinks that soap operas are for idiots. It's a parody of soap opera by somebody who doesn't own a television. (laughs) I know they advertise as a comic strip. I think it had its origins in a series of LBC commercials, which definitely has its fans, because when I'm searching on YouTube for the world of Melanie Parker, the LBC commercials come up. But it's just, hello, we're in this little village, and there's Lady So-and-so, and she's having an affair with her chauffeur, and just that whole thing of, this is what soap operas are like, isn't it? Is, this, is that just me and my lower middle class rage? I think you know, I think you're right. The impression I got was of something put on by an overindulged upper middle class teenager and the father sitting there with his pipe gripped into the gun. Laughing so much, you can't actually hear the jokes. He's just laughing because he knows he's meant to. The mission to explain is rapidly replaced with a new agenda, basically. Paddy! Put on whatever will get eyeballs, anything at all that will get eyeballs. We don't just go over the ground that's already been very, very well covered, so I think most people are aware. No, I want to mention one more thing. One thing that has been said again and again, but it's worth saying. Greg Dyke to Nick Owen, he wanted him to introduce the bingo numbers, wearing a straw butter, a stripy blazer, and blowing a bugle. I admire Nick Owen standing up for himself saying no, but at the same time... It would have been funny, wouldn't it? I think he said no after giving it some thought. Well, you can't ask for any more than that. He's got to have been tempted. I think it was a good call on his part, but I think he's got a sound enough background to understand that you need to give these things a little thought. Is it going to work? Just dismiss it out of hand. The famous five eventually starts drifting away. Angela, Rippon, Anna Ford are sacked, supposedly for disloyalty, for having spoken out in public and so on. Peter J leaves the company. Jonathan Aitken comes in, installs his cousin, Timothy Aitken. We have the arrival of Greg Dyke from LWT as saviour-in-chief. His remit, given the green light by the IBA, is they need to survive. So throw out original programming plans. We just need to stay on the air. We need to get people watching this, however we go about doing that and you've got a lot of changes in terms of time slots what time tvm starts so and so on roland rat of course is brought in and is a success in the nine o'clock slot during the children's school holidays you've got the arrival of Anne diamond from the bbc and nick owen and they work together well as a presenting pair and they end up staying put for several years and so tvm starts to then clamber up the rankings. Now, okay, here's an idea 
here's for a viewpoint. It's easy to say this retrospectively, so you wouldn't hear a lot of people perhaps saying this in 1983. But I'm going to suggest that TVM's survival plan, even though it was very populist and, and crass and, and what have you, by modern standards, I mean, it really wasn't all that bad, was it? I mean, just when you were saying there about how Nick Owen was asked to wear the, the boater and blow the bugle and what have you, I started thinking about live TV. And again, we'll put this, we'll put this one onto the list as well. High-minded ideals in commercial television rapidly replaced with very low-minded ideals. And that's probably the example which, certainly as far as the secondary approach in terms of just putting on popular stuff, that's the one that really scrapes the bottom of the barrel. TV M83 didn't do anything like live TV did. I, mean, okay, I know they wouldn't be allowed to do topless darts, but they didn't also have Rusty Goff doing the Weller on a trampoline. They didn't have News Bunny. They didn't go utterly bonkers and just put out absolute trash. The neat narrative would have it, the story goes, and then TVAM got on top and was okay. But one thing in that documentary, The Battle for Britain's Breakfast, before 1986, nobody really had the upper hand. Once TVM recovered, the number one slot just drifted back and forth between the BBC and TVAM. And looking at some of the ratings, BBC Breakfast Time slipped a bit, but it wasn't a case of everybody who joined TVAM had deserted the BBC. So there were people coming to TVAM who just hadn't been watching breakfast television. Do you want to take a quick trip into... I know we like to do recasting on the sitcom club. So we can do a quick bit of recasting, but it's not just some nonsense that I've come up with off the top of my head. How different things would have been if the rumours had been true at the time when TVM was bringing in some populist celebrities such as Diana Dors. So it's under Greg Dyke's stewardship now. It's in the summer of 1983. A little clipping here says, Rumours that Terry Wogan had been approached were discounted by Mr Wogan's agent. Wogan had been considered and discounted by the BBC. I'm not sure the money was there. And Greg Dyke has said that one of the interesting things, the stimulating things about TVM, was that there was no money, which meant you could do preposterous things. Getting that outside broadcast unit, <laughs> calling, saying, I need this, I need 10 grand for an outside broadcast unit, being told no. Ringing Timothy Aitken and Aitken saying, we're going bust anyway, so... <laughs> and as previously mentioned, Greg Dyke getting the keys to the TVAM barge. So just in case everything <laughs> gone, realising that he couldn't actually get the money he'd been promised if the company went into liquidation, he was going to take the barge as payment. <laughs> so you've got, for example, you've got Chris Tarrant on the beach, and we've got the aforementioned bingo numbers. We've got Jimmy Greaves with his television review. Rusty Lee, of course. And it actually starts to find its own flavour. It starts to get a bit of confidence. And it's putting on a nice light-hearted tabloid, but I suppose you would say populist, but not lowest common denominator show. And of course, funnily enough, amazingly, to the astonishment of a lot of the media types, it's popular. People actually tune in and stay watching it and come back the next day. Going back to your Terry Wogan thing, the other thing is 
I'm thinking of Adrian Childs and Christine Blakely doing Daybreak. When the big names come in, it's like, oh, we have to change the format around the big name. We have to make it more focused on them. So I think that would have been something that might have happened with Terry Wogan. The relaunch would have been too self-conscious. You also have the fact that Wogan would have been able to make demands, reasonable demands. I'm not talking about his personality, but he would have been able to ask for things that might not have been to the advantage of the company as a whole. Yeah, and Terry Wogan, in a documentary a couple of years ago about Saturday Night TV, said that he had already knocked back and approached Mel Beauty to front Game for a Laugh. So if he wasn't going to leave the BBC for a Saturday night P-Time show from London Weekend, he certainly wasn't going to give up his BBC career to go to a station which didn't even know if it was going to see it at the end of 1983. That industrial dispute that we spoke about with the advertisements actually carried on all the way through to September 84. So it was quite a miracle that TVM actually managed to survive that first couple of years. Even going populist, it's, it's quite amazing that they managed to stay afloat. And then, of course, we have the arrival of the Wizard of Oz, as he was referred to. Bruce Gingell comes in after financial restructuring, and Greg Dyke parts company with TVM soon after. And then Gingell decides that TVM should be Eternal Summer, and he brings in the pinks and the yellows and so on. And strangely enough, that was something that was then junked by Daybreak in 2010. Looking at photographs Oh, I've of, seen that set. It looks terrible. If you have a look on TV Arc, they've got a good section on the various ITV breakfast shows. And they've got this studio with proper windows, and when it's dark outside, it's dark. And they're not making any allusion to it being otherwise and so yeah it, it, the, the colors are purple largely and yeah it's a really odd looking thing it, it looks more like a late night discussion program than a breakfast show but by and large Gingell's approach about it always being sunny and welcoming and lovely and warm and should always be the middle of july that's pretty much stuck everywhere now because you see that on good morning britain today you see it on bbc breakfast but as we said, we saw it on Good Morning Calendar as well. Yes. Yeah, indeed. TVM, we, we know then of its ups and downs that it has later on. One aspect of it that we can't finish on our discussion about TVM for mentioning, of course, is the ACTT dispute of 1987, which led to a management-run service and the return of Batman and Happy Days to ITV which actually increased the viewing figures. I remember my mum waking me up one morning because Batman was on. She thought I might like to watch it. <laughs> that's absolutely true about the, the viewing figures. That's, that's often something that you hear people say, oh, yeah, they put on Batman and the viewing figures shot up. They didn't shoot up, but they definitely did go up. We've checked. Uh, the service of Batman and Happy Days was more popular than the normal fare, which was already very popular at the time. Another thing on YouTube, there is a world in action made in the middle of the strike and actually takes a look at criticisms of the union beyond just they're lucky to have jobs. It actually looks at whether the union was drawing too many resources towards itself. It's not like a whitewashing of Gingell's behaviour, but it's interesting to have a few different ideas in there. And the TVAM documentary from TV Hell Night also on YouTube, Storm and an Egg Cup, I can remember the TVL one, 
That is after they'd been told they weren't getting the franchise renewed, but before GMTV had started, right? That's right, yes. For a while, actually, I mean, those two documentaries, and that TV Hell one in particular, that was about it as far as if you wanted to find out anything about TVM and Breakfast TV in general, that was about all it was doing the rounds online. And it's only within the last couple of years that, for example, things like the whole of the first morning's TVM and that Walden Action documentary, then we had that new one that came out just the other year as well. There's more and more information around and about, and God bless whoever it was that preserved Good Morning Calendar. I don't know who that was that recorded that in 1977, but we're very grateful that they put that on the internet later on. Quick thing worth mentioning, Batman being a big hit on TVAM, Adam West was invited to the studio during the strike, but wouldn't cross the picket line. Yes, yeah. And it was an odd period throughout. I mean, you've got that management-run service going on for quite a few months, and there are certain liberties being taken by TVM during that time. Some of them they got the knuckles wrapped for. So, for example, they cleared off to Australia for their 200th anniversary. That was okay as far as they were operating within the rules, but it seemed somewhat odd that they'd suddenly give over an entire week to that. They did get in trouble with the IBA for putting out some programming from Disney. They had some programming that they put out over Christmas, and it was not much more than a glorified advert for Disneyland. And eventually the IBA <laughs> said to them, this is actually just promotional material you're putting out. I think you're going to knock this on the head. But it's fascinating looking at any material from that era. And I've not seen any evidence of this. So I don't know how much of this is perhaps hyperbole or if it's people embellishing the truth and what have you. But there are suggestions, for example. I definitely remember seeing the insert commercial here slide pop up during an episode of Batman. That much I can tell you. I saw that firsthand. But supposedly there are instances of two-part stories going out in the wrong order. And some multi-part part stories... one twice. <laughs> some multi-part stories just never being resolved. And, of course, the famous one, and I know some people have argued about this on the forums ever since and say that it's not even technically possible, but the suggestion that Flipper was run backwards. If anybody has any evidence of that, if anybody has a VHS recording of the opening titles of Flippers running backwards on TVM, please tell us, and, and preferably upload it to YouTube. But, of course... TVM, unexpectedly, loses 1991, franchise round, goes off the air, end of 1992, replaced by GMTV. They have their own difficulties in the first year or so. I suppose that's natural, that given that TVM had built up quite a big audience by then, that any successor to them was going to have problems and they you know, had issues with their on-screen talent and what have you, and some people are shuffled around, and eventually it settles down. And BBC, in the meantime, went completely opposite direction because BBC in 87 decides that it is going to do a morning version of Newsnight after all. That's just the internal politics of the BBC. Just too much news agenda. Too many people in positions of power. Too many DGs who've come up from news. Not just talking about Bert. But too many people get to the top or near the top who have a distorted view of what the BBC was about. Because I don't think it was a case of this is too popular. It was simply because this is not what we should be doing. It's under John Burt, though, isn't it, that it happens? 
Mr. Bias Against Understanding, Mr. Weekend World. I mean, I like the theme tune to Nice Time and its B-side, Kenny Everett single. He was involved in that, but... And the theme tune to Weekend World, of course. Yeah, but he didn't write that. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Yes, but... It's, again, it's managers making what managers want to be associated with. Probably people who use words like sexy in the wrong context. That's John Burt's thing of rolling news. So BBC One eventually transforms breakfast time into breakfast news, which eventually becomes breakfast, and when it becomes breakfast again, it sort of finds a little bit of the old breakfast time about it. So it is what it is now. It's your two presenters on the sofa, and it's still, I suppose, more newsy than the opposition on ITV, which is now settled down eventually with Good Morning Britain, and they're, they're still trying to sort of find their feet with that to an extent. They're trying to sort of copy the American format a little bit more. What's going on on Channel 4? Channel 4 had been running a thing called the Channel 4 Daily, and the idea was that they could commission lots of different bits from lots of different people, do their whole publisher broadcaster thing, and very upper-middle-class lifestyle accessory style of doing things. And as the name implies, the newspaper style of doing things. Here's the news. Here's a puzzle. Here's you know five minutes of countdown. Here's a review. Here's a little bit of analysis of something. Here's the business news. The idea being that people were only going to watch 10-minute chunks. But it didn't flow. It was, right, here is 10 minutes of this and stop. Here's 10 minutes of something else. Which meant if you tuned in during the 10 minutes of a thing you didn't like, you turn on, oh, countdown masters, that's not my thing. They had apparently sold themselves on the idea, well, you're only ever 10 minutes away from another feature, but 10 minutes is a long time, in the morning particularly. I asked you to remember a number. Can you say that number back to me? The number is 200,000. And no matter what they did, no matter what relaunches they took for the Channel 4 Daily, they were stuck at 200,000, despite the fact they were resigned to being a minority program on a minority channel 200,000 was felt to be not big enough so the channel 4 daily was put to one side pilots were shot ideas were thrown around and they went for the big breakfast made by planet 24 in the hope that the big breakfast would get 400,000 that was what they were told to aim for very quickly they're getting 600,000 eventually they're getting about 2 million they're the number one breakfast show. Now, you can say, was it the success of their format? But of course, you've got the fact that the two other majors have kind of given up. TVM is shuffling towards its demise. The BBC has decided it's just too damned important to be nice. And the initial aim of the Big Breakfast, it was going for young families. It wasn't necessarily youth TV. They might have wanted to give a little bit of a young feeling, but it was more, right, get the children in and something that their parents can watch and their parents are not, it's young families, so the parents are not going to be that old. So just get something light and frothy. And of course, you got the student element in, so you're getting this heavy element of youth orientation. And I think that brings up another problem. The kinds of people you want for a youth-orientated show when you get young faces, when you get young people, when you get young-minded people, you're also going to get careerism. 
Somebody like Frank Boff is a company man. Don't mean that as a criticism. He just, that's it. So he's fine. How long was he on breakfast time? Well, he was there from the outset through until within the new era. So I think in total he was there about five years. I think he left at the end of 87. So if you told him in five years time you're still going to be presenting breakfast time, that would be fine with him. It's not necessarily poverty of ambition or being set in one's ways. It's just something else. There isn't a nice word for that. Well, no, the vocabulary fails me. I wouldn't say that necessarily Cena Scott fits into that role, but otherwise, I mean, you've got people like, for example, say, Nick Ross. You've got basically professional presenters. That's what they do. And they move on from one job to the next. And over the course of, say, 20 or 30 years, they'll they'll have stints presenting particular shows. So say Frank Boff's done Grandstand for a good long while and what have you. So that's what they do. And once that's run its course, they'll move on to the next thing. They don't have in mind the idea that one day they'd like to be the producer of the show and the owner of the production company and so on and so on. Unlike certain people. I wasn't going to turn this into <laughs> personal things. So that new Top Gear then, eh? What do you reckon about that? See, now we're being topical, see? What, who's taken over from Angela Rippon? It's been a while since that. So, of course, the other thing The Big Breakfast has is sheer novelty. But it's a certain kind of novelty that will be difficult to keep fresh. And so I think it, it flared out. Even if Chris Evans had stayed longer than he did, I think there was only so long that that would stay the fresh thing. They were aiming at... I don't know if fickle is quite the right word. The child audience is fickle. The youth audience is fickle. In its own way, it needs constant updating. GMTV managed to perch away a lot of children using Power Rangers. And in fact, I believe GMTV somehow managed to perch Power Rangers away from The Big Breakfast. I mean, The Big Breakfast was going to buy it, and GMTV managed to get in there first. And they never quite get anybody to replace Chris Evans. Not soon enough. I think Mark Little thought he was getting the job and he didn't. So Paul Ross comes in. There comes a point when you say, who is the presenter of the Big Breakfast now? And it becomes a question to which there are three or four different answers. And the Big Breakfast had previously been very strict to having the same thing at the same time every day. I can't remember if it was before we started recording or during this recording. But we're talking about ranting and how I rent too much. And I asked both of us to bear that in mind for later. So ranting. I want you to explain this to me. I think you possibly maybe watch breakfast television more than I did. I mean, you know, what were you, a swap shop child or a Tiswas child? I don't know. Even at that age, I was never a morning person. I was Tiswas, I was Tiswas, but when Tiswas then transformed into that ghastly entity called Number 73, then I was from the BBC. If I was old enough to remember Zocco, I might have had an answer, but not a morning person. So I gather that the second coming of the Big Breakfast was when they had Johnny Vaughan and Denise Van Outen. Tell me about that, then. Like you said, you've got various pairings that don't really match up. I mean, before we were recording this, we watched a little bit of the 1996 relaunch with, was it Rick Adams and Sharon Davis? And it's not like there's any kind of tension there. There's just no chemistry at all. And you've got various attempts at getting that kind of chemistry again. Denise Van Outen, I think that she'd been on the show in that era, 
but doing her own thing. I think she was up in like the helicopter or something like that. And then eventually, Johnny Vaughn and Denise found out, and it just worked. I mean, it's just one of those things that I guess maybe if they've done a hundred different screen tests with different pairings, then they might not have found it. But sometimes you just get that kind of chemistry. And you mentioned Adrian Childs and Christine Blakely, for example, earlier on, and they were another pairing who just worked in each other's company, and Diamond and Nick Owen, for that matter. You know, sometimes you just get these pairings that, that just come together and everything's all right with the world. And so for that little period, it was like, yes, it had its little renaissance and, you know, maybe it's 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 going gonna, it's gonna to do all right. Funnily enough, when they then tried to recreate that, there was a short-lived vehicle on BBC One on a Saturday evening with Johnny Vaughan and Dean's found out and that didn't work. That wasn't a success. So sometimes taking the pairing and then putting them somewhere else like, for example, again, Adrian Childs, Christine Blakely over on the other side, you know, moving them from evening to morning didn't work in their case. In the case of Johnny Vaughn and Denise Van Outen, moving them from the morning to the evening didn't work. But nonetheless, yeah, Big Breakfast was successful again. Like you say, you knew who the presenters were. You weren't having to take a guess at it that particular week. And then Denise Van Outen left, and a mistake was made. She was in the ITV sitcom Babes in the Wood with Jacko. Oh, I have to make a confession here that one of the players in this story of breakfast television is a friend of a friend, and you get nowhere by slagging off friends of friends. It's made me extra jumpy and extra conscientious about not just being nasty about people like they don't have any feelings. Like, people who are media properties, we can just talk about them any way we want. We always try to avoid that in Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Anybody is going to be treated as subhuman. It's going to be Gary. Eh? Kelly Brook was the replacement for Denise Van Outen. And there was a feeling that she had simply been chosen for her looks and she was not a success. But Kelly Brook is a human being with her own emotions and hopes and dreams. And I don't know enough about her to write her off. I'd I'd add that she's had a pretty successful career before and after The Big Breakfast, and I don't really think that she she worries all that much about it, to be honest. But a memo was leaked, saying all names must be written in capitals and phonetically, don't give her any alliteration, make your instructions in simple words, and try and think up spontaneous one-liners that she can say to Johnny. It, It has to be highlighted as part of the story, but it just also feels a bit scummy to draw attention to that if we don't put a bunch of caveats in saying, hey, we're not trying to come off like we're better. One thing I've heard, a criticism of Johnny Vaughan, is that he started going off on rants and that this was something that didn't play well with the viewers eventually. Can you explain that one to me? Okay, so I suppose if any presenter, because this isn't specific to Johnny Vaughan or to Chris Evans, because I know quite often people will talk about him in this regard, there's a certain amount of leeway that presenters are often given, and particularly presenters who are doing well in a show. And if a presenter has boosted the ratings of a show, then they're going to be given space to do their own thing and to bring their own personality to the show and and what have you. You don't want to be immediately putting them in a straitjacket and saying, no, you've got to do it like this, do it like that, and so on and so on. It does seem, I suppose, you'd say Jeremy Clarkson is another presenter who's classified in this manner. You get certain presenters who eventually they're given too much leeway and they perhaps can be seen as bigger than the show itself and if you don't have a producer who's you know got a good strong hold over the show and a good strong hold over the presenters then you might get a situation where 
their ego is running wild. So you can end up with a situation where, say, for example, like Chris Moyles when he was on Radio 1, and sometimes he would just talk for 10 minutes or 15 minutes without playing a record, for example. Things like that, I suppose it's usually indicative that the end is nigh as far as a particular presenter on a particular show on a particular network is concerned. And, yeah, Johnny Bond would sometimes, he'd go off on one. He'd go on a little bit too long about a particular topic. He had his platform and maybe he had something he wanted to say. And at that point, a producer should be stepping in and just saying quietly, uh, we've got to move on. We've got to keep the What kind going. of rants? What were they about? I wasn't watching uh, Big Breakfast at this time, so I didn't see any of these firsthand. Uh, it was yourself that mentioned this. Uh, initially, what we were talking before. As far as I know, I think it would have just been something that was probably light-hearted in tone. Because, I mean, you know, like, famously, there was instances of DJs on Radio 1 sometimes getting a bee in their bonnet about a particular topic and suddenly going off on a monologue of their own making and then being sort of wrapped by Johnny Beerling or whoever saying, no, you can't go off on that particular topic on the air. You're supposed to be playing records. I think it was something along those lines where, you know, maybe he would just, particular item, whatever it would be, he'd just start espousing his views and what have you. And no maliciousness about it. It's not as if he was trying to settle scores or anything like that. I think it was more just that Johnny Vaughn wasn't necessarily considering the overall running order of the show and keeping it on track and keeping the items concise. Let's open the mailbag. I did a bloody hell am I to talk about keeping items concise. God almighty, how long did it take me to say that? It should have been a bloody single sentence. So the mailbag, yes? Because we had a compliment from Mike Scott about our massive derail at the end of our sitcom club about the whackers, in which we just started complaining about all television after about 1994 and how it was horrible and how it was sneering. Again, this thing we are talking about earlier, sneering, acting like they're doing you a favour television made by television people for television people and you might as well look in you have nowhere else to go <laughs> nah sounding like some sort of english mcclash aren't i and funnily enough when we got this tweet i mentioned that we'd had almost the same conversation that very day the day before we recorded this what brought that conversation on it was a big breakfast wasn't it no it was rise oh yes. the replacement for the big breakfast rise and the first shot of Rise, Rise didn't even have a title sequence, just bow, open, and the camera swoops around. And the presenters are all talking to each other. And the first thing, what was the name of the presenter? It was Mark Durden-Smith, who is the son of Joseph Chalmers. And usually these days you'll see him like turning up. He does quite a lot of rugby and what have you on television. He's done some of the holiday programs as well. Not assigning blame. Television is a collaborative medium. We can spread this blame around. We're not just going for him. But just about the first thing out of his mouth is a little spiel slagging off the big breakfast. There won't be any puppets. There won't be any crew members laughing. Something about this will give you everything you need in half an hour. Yeah, which is actually reminiscent a little bit of the Channel 4 Daily, isn't it? Right. This is difficult to convey in the medium of audio, but I'll try anyway. Cliff Mitchellmore once said about the sets at Television Centre. In the end, it all comes down to that, and he made a sign just basically of a square. And he's basically saying that no matter how big the set is, people aren't likely to be impressed by it. The majority of the time, it's going to be head and shoulder shot of somebody speaking. And that's what it is in Rise, just the same as anything else. 
it was something I noticed quite a bit about BT Sport when they started. That they were going on about their Olympic Park studios and I think they were talking about the, if you were to lay all the cables end to end it would be X number of miles and all this kind of stuff. And this, funnily enough, was before they'd signed, for example, things like the rights deal for the Champions League. Now they've got some rights under the belt, now they talk about them. But initially, with a scarcity of content to talk about, you start talking about things like the set and the studio. That's and... something I think that can be argued to be a different need now for television. The ship is different. It's all about that makes a 16 by 9 ship. And televisions are getting bigger and bigger. I know somebody with a 75-inch television. We are heading towards Fahrenheit 451, where it's just like a wall in the house. Then the sense of space, I think, will start to become important. Okay, I don't want us to get off track here, but... We just I'm... got complimented for going off track. Well, keep going, keep well, going. Yeah, I've, 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 I've been... Good books recently? I'm the one who's always in favour of going off track. I'm the one who usually starts the show off track. And yeah, but when I do of... it, it's interesting. Oh, I see. Well, okay, right, I'm you going to... talking about sandwiches and... I had a nice ham and mustard from You're making people tell them about my omelette. I don't want to talk about my omelette. Is this going to be a television-related... It is, yes, yes. I'm going to take ad- it, then. Take I'm it. I'm going to adopt a contrary position, and I'm going to say that we are not going to move to a situation where the TV fills a wall, because I think that there is a limit to how big a screen will be in people's homes. I know this is something that's being experimented with now. I know that 4K is being rolled out in more and more places, and that's something which works best on a bigger screen. I know that they just were trailing the roll-up screen uh, they do in Vegas you know, a couple of months back and what have you. I don't think we're going to get to a point where you're going to get screens which are as tall as you are. I, I just I don't see it happening. I think that there's going to. But I still come... think it's a changing need. Yes, it the is. The sense of space is now going to change the way. So big sets will be, if not a necessity, something that's going to be featured more and more. And we're going to get less tight mid shots. Perhaps, but it's also a great deal of expense, and a lot of broadcasters, not just the BBC, but a lot of broadcasters these days are cutting back on their production expenditure, as particularly as rights fees get more and more expensive. You don't need an enormous set when you've got four people sat around a desk. There are certain types of shows for which a large set works well. I mean, something like, for example, say America's Got Talent or The X Factor when you've got a studio audience and you've got you know, the requirement to have like, different sets for different performers. Say something like Eurovision Song Contest, for example. That works well in a large venue. But when it's mainly presenter and guests sat around a desk. You don't need a large set for that. That's not going to sell any 4K sets. That's for sure. People are not going to invest in technology because of the size of, of any one studio. Let's face it, it's movies and sport which, which drive people's buying options, generally speaking, when it comes to technological advancement. This is unusual for me, particularly as I'm an old fart now set my ways, prefer my television, generally speaking, before 1993, but I'm going to actually argue in favour of the Big Breakfast in one particular regard. When we were looking at some clips off-air before, I said to you, what was the point at which we got to the situation where four people sat round a table cribbing stories from the newspapers 
and expressing their opinions about them was actually seen as a legitimate form of content. Because you get, for example, channels like London Live, who do that kind of thing now. That goes out as supposedly factual programming. It's just basically four people with opinions. You've no idea who they are, what their background is, what their qualification is for saying any of this, but they can talk for half an hour, so we'll give them a platform. I know that people could throw that accusation at us as well. Hell, Steve, I appreciate that. But we're not taking up anybody's TV time. We're just doing a wee podcast, and we're doing it ourselves, and we're putting it out there, and if people want to listen to it, then fair enough. But we're not setting ourselves up to be experts or anything like that. I was sort of wondering out loud, at what point did that kind of thing happen? When did that become acceptable? Now, here's a funny thing about The Big Breakfast. You can look at The Big Breakfast on YouTube today, look at clips of it, and you sort of think, oh God, this must have been when it all turned. You know, it's all like pure vacuous and what have you. But let's face it, The Big Breakfast took some doing. It took some work. When you've got Keith Chegwin or Mark Lamar knocking on people's doors and what have you, that took an OB crew to do that. That took planning in advance to work out something new to do each and every day. And you've got Zig and Zag doing their bits and pieces. You've got script writers and puppeteers and what have you involved. When you've got Polly Yates interviewing whoever on the bed, you know you needed a booker to be able to come up with interesting guests each and every day. When you've got all the items working at the same time each day and running to the same length and what have you, there's a lot of skill involved in this. When you look at something like Rise, you start to see what happens when all that kind of work is cut back upon. And now it's a bit more of the free-form, oh, well, you'd really like to hang out with us, wouldn't you? We're just four great guys and girls and we're just going to sit here and chew the fat and, and all this kind of stuff. And then you get to a situation where you sort of end up with that as an entire program. There's no great deal of forward planning goes into that, and there's certainly no expenditure goes into it. So, in 2016, what does British Breakfast Television principally consist of? Well, it's interesting. You've got, effectively, the same players that were always there before. You have BBC One with Breakfast, newly concise title. I say newly, it's been like that for about 15 years. And that is quite news heavy, but in an informal setting. Two presenters on the sofa, nice bright colours, and so on. You've got Good Morning Britain on ITV. Like I say, trying to ape a little bit more of an American format. Presenters around the desk and what have you. Lots of information on the screen, moving ticker and the Weller and all that kind of stuff. A lot of stuff looking for your attention all the time. Channel 4 has really got out of the breakfast show business. And it's been like this for a long time now, where they just have repeats of old American sitcoms that they've previously shown in peak time. And then really the only other player is Sky, which shows on Sky 1 as well. Sky News, they have Sunrise, which is normally hosted by Eamon Holmes. And otherwise, you've got basically a lot of television on at breakfast time, which isn't breakfast television. So BBC Two, for example, they're showing their daytime shows repeated again. And Channel 5 has kids' shows. And then as soon as you get past the first six or so channels, you're basically looking at just the channels churning out repeats of what was on the previous evening. That was another thing we forgot to mention in the GMTV story, because at one point BBC Two started showing children's programs, which was not something they thought they were going to have to deal with. 
further reading, watching, listening. There's plenty to choose from, isn't there? A lot of the information that I was referring to when it came to the industrial disputes and what have you that came from a very fine, thick volume called Independent Television in Britain, Volume 5, ITV and the IBA from 1981 to 1992. So I very much recommend that. As far as little clippings were concerned, a lot of that came from the Times Digital Archive. And we mentioned the documentaries, of course, on YouTube. You'll find the Walden Action documentary. You'll find Storm and an Egg Cup. And I think, what was it called? The Battle for Britain's Breakfast, was it called? And you also had a book on your Kindle, didn't you? I did, yes. If I sounded unusually well-researched and authoritative this time, it's mainly because a lot of the stuff that came out of my mouth I'd just finished reading in a book called Morning Glory, A History of British Breakfast Television, written by Ian Jones. It's available all over the place. And another part of my research was, if you go to vimeo.com, I think vimeo.com forward slash Bob the Fish, a series of mini documentaries about ITV franchises called ITV in the Face, written and presented by Matthew Harris, has shows given over to TVAM and GMTV, respectively. There is also a late night ITV one as well, which might be worth us cribbing from shamelessly. So if we ever do our late night ITV, watch ITV in the first late night beforehand, and then uh, nothing we say will be new to you. <laughs> and we also, of course, accessed a lot of clips on TV Arc as well, which has a section all about breakfast television and ITV, lots of clips from TVM, GMTV, and so on. Now, I'm all hugely confused at this point because we were doing monthly shows, and now all of a sudden we're doing weekly shows, so where are we? Where are we now? This is the 18th of March. I'm happy for us to go every other week. If I'm happy for us to do first and third. Fridays, for a while. First and third Fridays, but what about those occasions when you have a fifth Friday? Hmm. Jeff and Gig Jukebox, we can do that. So what are we going to be talking about, not in seven days' time, but in, say, ten days' time on Easter Monday, the first bank holiday Monday of the year? It's time for the Bank Holiday Sitcom Club specials. And this is our first one. And we went through a list of shows, and neither one of us went, this could find one that we both agreed on. Until at some point, one of us went, we need something that's obscure enough for Sitcom Club. But we also need something that has a certain element of name recognition. Because it's the first time you've done one of these in a long time. You don't want to be coming on with Mr. Digby Darling. We found a compromise between these two ideas. So next time on Sitcom Club, we will be talking about David Jason at ITV. Next month on Jaffa Cakes of Proust, we're going to be looking at an early 60s science fiction show aimed at families, meant to be semi-educational, done under the aegis of Sidney Newman. Jeremy Phillips from Cinema Limbo, a fellow Podnos podcast, will be joining us and we'll be looking at the Pathfinders in Space trilogy in four parts. Four parts? Yeah, because it's Target Luna. That's part of the same story, but it's not called Pathfinders. If you do have anything for us, then you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're Jaffas for Proust. And of course, the other place is at the Sitcom Club. And you'll find all the podcasts that we've done and indeed all the jukeboxes as well. you find them all at podnose.com where you also find the aforementioned Cinema Limbo and all Malin Rilla shows. I think... There's been a new Sitcom Club USA just released within the past week or so. So you can check that out. 
in the meantime, Tilt, you've been Ocho. Goodbye. And this is Gary with Mooncat saying thank you very much indeed for listening to Jaffa Kicks for Proust. <laughs>